Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello and welcome to a, another edition of The Consultants, a regular podcast piece where I pull together some of my consultants and we sit and talk about information security, what's going on at the moment, some of the changes that we're seeing, some of the details behind it, um, and all things InfoSec. My name is James Reese, as you probably already know by now. And with me, I have Tom Mills and Jamie Hayward. Tom, Jamie, do you want to say hello? Let's start with Jamie. Hi, I'm Jamie Hayward. I've been with Razorthorn for about three years, but been in InfoSec for over 10. Tom? Uh, yeah, Tom Mills, been with Razorthorn for just over four months now. Uh, absolutely loving life, as everyone can probably imagine. I've been in the information and security game for about 16 and a half years now. Fantastic, yes. Obviously, we've we've all read, and probably all of you out there as well have read, the fun and games that are going on with the various ransomware attacks. More hospitals have been done, more organisations have been hit, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. If anything, it actually seems to be speeding up a bit. And us as a security community are seriously having to change our thoughts on defence in depth. All of our defence in depth measures before were pretty much geared towards supporting a, a single office or a group of offices where everybody would come in and work. And now that's not the case. The The office perimeter has expanded to pretty much everybody's home, everybody's front room. People are using, obviously, their own wireless locally now in order to connect back into the office. Uh, there's quite a significant amount of change going on in our industry. I mean, what do you, what do you guys think about that? Who wants to start? Um, I think defense in depth is definitely something that's going to become more and more relevant uh, in the in this industry. Ideally, it should have happened sooner, in my opinion. But, you know, defense in depth is definitely something um, where the industry is going. Um, we're going to need to layer uh, multiple technologies, processes, people over each other in order to protect, uh, protect ourselves and to protect our critical assets, which is the whole point of information security. Tom, you're, uh, you know, coming out of the military. I mean, there's, there's two different entities to this. Um, I mean, obviously, one of them is the whole defence in depth methodology that, yes, we're starting to see within the corporate world to, um, that are starting to actually like defence in depth and recognise defence in depth as, um, as a recognised methodology to take forward within their structure. But it's been used in the military for at least the last couple of decades um, I mean, even 15 years ago, when I was going out to, to minor units or major units to conduct their um, investigations to do their, their audits, we weren't just looking at one security domain and doing the audit on that. We were looking at 11 different security domains, all the way from personal and personal security um, through to crypto security, down to physical security, even all the way up to, to arms and ammunition security. So um, all those levels obviously interact with each other and overlap in some way, shape or form. Um, so when we did an audit, we weren't just judging one specific domain on the criticality. Where we filled out a, a questionnaire form or a matrix form, giving a, a risk score uh, or rating score to each of those domains and subdomains which then came out with the end product, came out with the end score. And if they met a required 
score that would either pass or fail that audit, you know what I mean, then uh, further actions would be taken. Obviously, conclusion recommendations would be taken out of that and put forward to the unit to remediate any uh, lapses in control strengths. But they all work together. And I think this is something that the corporate world is, is starting to see is they shouldn't just be looking at their information security. They shouldn't just be looking at their physical security because it all comes together in this holistic approach of defense in depth. So it should all be monitored and work together because if one thing fails, the whole system fails. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's taken a long time for our industry, commercially speaking, to really get there. I mean, there was a lot of us that were talking about it for a long time. We used to call it the security onion. You know, each, each of the slices of skin of, of, of onion would, would be a different countermeasure that you'd put in place with the organization's key assets kind of in the middle of it. And obviously that's changed now. I mean, we tend to represent it on, on a, on an iceberg. Other people represent it in various other different ways. But I think one of the, the, the more significant changes, I mean, our tool set, I mean, we've, I've done podcasts about this recently. We have more tools and toys now in our industry than we've ever had in the past. And that's from the more defensive side of things. We've got SEAM, we've got XDR, we've got MDR, we've got endpoint security, we've got intelligence solutions, we've got obviously the more traditional things like firewalls. and But now we have such a plethora of tools at our disposal that there is no reason why we couldn't do proper defense in depth. I think part of the problem I see is a lot of people are still running off this ancient sort of defense in depth or security onion model, um, still kind of concentrating on utilizing the more traditional security solutions. And a lot of it is solution-based. Yeah, okay, you know, if they've got ISO 27001 or PCI DSS as a requirement or HIPAA or any of the other kind of main frameworks, then they have those security policies and procedures that, that, that puff that out. But a lot of organizations aren't required to kind of meet that kind of standard. They're still relying very heavily on technology. And you can't do that anymore. I think that's pretty obvious when you look at some of the stuff that's been going on. And it moves, it moves back into the whole kind of like trilogy, doesn't it? Of like, um, processes, people and technology. You need all three to form that kind of, um, defense in depth. You need all, all three of those pillars to be as strong as each other. And, uh, and as, uh, going, also going back to your point about, um, the number of tools and solutions that we're, we've got at the moment, there's been recently, probably in the last 10 years, significant investment in solutions and technology. Obviously, people were seeing that these attacks were happening. They were, you know, there's been forecasts about, you know, the global cybersecurity um, spending and all that type of thing. People have just plowed money towards vendors, solutions, technologies in order to produce those. So we do have the skill sets there at the moment, but you can't just rely on one of those three pillars. You can't just rely on technology. You have to rely on all three. And that's where you start. Not only are there kind of potential layers that you can put in from a technology point of view, like uh, I suppose the easiest example is email security, you, you know, email security, antivirus, and all those types of things, and layering a, an attack via from that vector. But you've also got to make sure that the your your personnel are trained 
they're trained to spot fish, uh, phishing emails or whatever that, that might sneak through that technology because no technology is 100%. So not only can you actually layer technology on top of each other, but you also have to look at layering technology with processes and the people and the training and awareness. Unless you're in marketing for one of these vendors, in which case buy their tool and it will fix everything. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, a couple, of, a couple of stats I have come prepared, which is not a regular thing when I come to do these types of videos. Actually, I was, I was writing an article this morning and grabbed hold of a couple of, a couple of stats. So it's estimated by Cybersecurity Ventures. It's a, yeah, they do the Cybercrime magazine. Really, really good resource. Really nice people there. They estimate that there's going to be a cost to $8 trillion to the world's economy in cybercrime. That's how much cybercrime is going to cost the economy in 2023. $8 trillion. Now, two or three years ago, that was $6 trillion. So it seems to be going up by, on average, a trillion, trillion dollars a year by the looks of it at the moment. Um, however, yeah, I was going to ask about the investment. <laughs> well, the investment, it's, it's a lot less. It's like the investment in protecting organizations, be it public, private, whatever, um, is only predicted between 2021 and 2025. Now, I don't know if this is yearly or whether this is for that time period, $1.75 trillion. We are spending next, you know, hardly anything compared to what the crime is costing us. And whilst, you know, I do understand that security, a lot of these security tools are quite expensive, and I still think it's because they're relatively new. You know, when you look at, for instance, if you look at the comparative cost of endpoint security, endpoint security when it was AV, and it only really did AV back in the day, was really expensive. 20 years ago, it was really expensive to get antivirus, but, but with all the viruses going on, you know, it was a captive market. You went out, you got your AV, whether it was Semantic, whether it was McAfee or Trend. There was there was comparatively a lot less vendors in this space. Nowadays, endpoint security is really really cheap compared to what it was twenty years ago. I guess really what I'm I'm saying is, you know, we're facing a situation where we need more investment in this space for organisations to invest in this space. Comparatively speaking, most organizations who do have a security budget tend to target it at five, between 5 and 10% of their overall IT budget. 10%, you know, 10% being the top end. I think that's frightening. I mean, I, you know, obviously IT is a very expensive resource to build out and to manage and to maintain either operationally or OPEX or CAPEX. But still, if we're spending next to nothing, if you've... According to those metrics, if you've got a million pound budget for your IT, 100k for your security. I mean, that's one, that's one scene product. If you're lucky, that's an endpoint security solution. And, and we're not even touching on the, the things, the snapshot in time stuff like penetration testing, vulnerability scanning, that kind of stuff. You're, you're literally, you're kind of hamstrung. Yeah, I mean, but that's the, that's the overall kind of security budget. I mean, yes, if you wanted to buy a SIEM solution, that would be your budget for the year. How do you then, you would have to obviously budget in cybersecurity people, people to run it, people to, you know. Well, people, people normally come out of a different budget, but okay, let's put it into a different perspective then. You know, most GRC tools out there, for a company that, you know, where you've got a million pounds spend on IT, 
a good GRC tool is pretty, you're probably not going to get much change, even if you're lucky, out of 60, 70, 80K. I mean, that's, that's, over, that's over half your security budget, half of it. I've been looking, I've been looking at GRC tools recently and everything else like that. And I've been going through some of the quotes I've been having. I think the smallest was 50K for a GRC tool. This is based on around a thousand users, et cetera, et cetera, but it is 50K. And a lot of GRC tools won't necessarily go smaller than a thousand users. They will obviously sell it to a company that's got less than a thousand users, but their minimum price point tends to be about 50K is the experience I've had. Yeah, some of the bigger boys in that area. And it's not just fixed to GRC tools. I'm not kind of like singling them out, but all vendors, all solutions, especially when you're talking seams and things like that as well. Yeah, you are completely correct. I mean, ideally, yes, it'd be great to have more. And going back to the the whole kind of investment, you know, percentages and things like that. The idea is obviously you have a risk. You may have, I mean, the, it's, it's one of the basics, uh, basis of, of risk is you ha- might have like a two million pound risk and you think you can mitigate that two million pound risk down to, you know, a hundred thousand pound risk by a 50,000 pound investment. It makes sense, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are fully covering yourself. I think we all can understand as a cybersecurity professionals that no company, no solution, no, um, you know, no setup, no, even in defense in depth is a hundred percent. It can never be a hundred percent. There's always new things to be found. Well, that's it as well. You know, you are right. It can't be a hundred percent, but equally, you know, if you're not spending any, any money on reducing your overall risk, if you're looking after a firm that's, pulling in, say, a trillion pounds a year or 500 million pounds per year, then you've got quite a significant amount of risk there. One ransomware attack and it could render the company completely dead. Yeah. So you're, if you're only spending 100 grand on your security, you know, it's like, mm, yeah. I mean, another stat, one last stat before we go over to Tom, because I know he's desperate to talk. <laughs> um the WEF, World Economic Forum, love them or hate them, think they're good or bad or whatever, they actually list cyber attacks, cybersecurity issues on their two-year forecast and their 10-year forecast as number eight in the list of concerns that they have. We're talking next to climate change. We're talking next to cost of living increases. You know, the WEF don't just look at specific types of risks. I mean, this is in their top 10 of risks for the world. This is, this is big. This is a big issue that we're not handling. I, I truly believe that, well, and we've seen part of it as well with the whole Ukraine and Russia thing. Um, there's been an increase of kind of Russian actors and things uh, and such like that because well, for many reasons, I'm not going to go too deeply into it, but for many reasons, there was an increase in Russian actors performing cybersecurity attacks at various targets around the world. We've seen it in some of our own clients. We've seen articles of it and even the kind of the ban that we discussed last time against Conti and because that's a Russian group and the, um, uh, and the ban on paying those against the ransomware that they perform. I think in the future, not only will there be walls of military action, but there will be also a massive increase in cyber cyber warfare as well. So do I think they're correct? Yes. 
Would I put it eighth? I don't know. That's a that's up to interpretation. But Tom, I'm sure you've got some insight into cyber warfare. Uh, only, only a little bit. Going on to, to points that have already been raised, certainly when it comes down to budget allocation from IT, uh, IT departments into things like cybersecurity solutions uh, to help them through whatever accreditation processes or build up that level of defence and depth. I think it's it's quite indicative when you see in the news that a, a large organisation um, has been subject to a breach that suddenly they're investing uh, £10 million in cybersecurity. And it, it really emphasises the whole reactive versus proactive approach that organisations take. And it's something that we are starting to see a shift within the commercial world, um, that some entities are starting to take that proactive approach because they're seeing the level of impact that these breaches have. Um, now, whether that be just on a financial setting or whether it be from a loss of reputation or, or even some sanctions that are being um, started or starting to be imposed, that's going to limit their ability to deal with these types of breaches. And obviously, we spoke about that in a, a previous talk about how ransomware is, uh, attacks are going to be affected by certain threat actors. We are starting to see a shift. And obviously, moving on to the whole the cyber warfare domain, I mean, just before I start going into it, there, there's two very good resources to, to dig into this. Two podcasts. One, uh, the Centre of Army Leadership podcast. It's a fantastic resource. Uh, they have some very fantastic speakers on there, and some of them delve into the threat of, of the cyber domain. Uh, but also, you've got the Grey Zone podcast. I think it's a series of not nine or ten uh, episodes, and it is absolutely fantastic. I would encourage uh, anyone to, to listen into them because it really delves into the intricacies of, of the current threat that we're facing from a, a cyber domain. Um, and the cyber warfare domain is actually now a, a recognised domain of warfare. Now, the complexities and considerations of it is, and obviously you spoke about it a little bit, Jamie, about we saw an increase of, of Russian-based threat actors either against Ukraine or even against UK-based organisations. Where there is a stopgap, uh, or an inability to actually declare those as Russian state-sponsored actors because it's, it's not officially deemed as Russian state actors because they're used through proxies. They're not officially affiliated to, to the Russian state in any way, shape or form. It's not deemed as a, an active act of war because we're also operating against policies and legislation. The Geneva Convention is, is one and another international regulations and legislations that define the context of, of what warfare is, but they are solely set on land-based warfare, not on cyber-based warfare. So any act of cyber warfare, as it may be referenced in this day and age, hasn't actually got the backing of what we're basing those, those acts on. So it'll be interesting to see what international organisations, uh, what future treaties and conventions are, are held to, to actually put in place policies and procedures to, to protect even international organisations and entities against this type of thing and whether a cyber act of warfare will be further defined in the future. It's, it's, it's a very interesting time, but equally very worrying. But you make a good point there, you know, governments are starting to take it very, very seriously and the, you know, the subject of cyber warfare very seriously. And we're definitely seeing in the European Union, the UK government and the US government, and no doubt a number of other governments as well, dotted around the world. They're starting to look very closely at legislating uh, and creating additional or up-to-date frameworks for cybersecurity for both 
public and and private organizations. And I think a lot of this is in answer to what we're seeing with the increase in attacks and some of the threats coming out of some of the regions that you guys have mentioned. And I think there's there's going to be a significant f- shift in focus from you know, the more traditional security where it's kind of tool-based with snapshots in time where we review things. So, you know, traditionally, when we were, for instance, reviewing a policy set, quite often that would be on an annual basis. Yeah, okay, if there was something glaring that you needed to change, then you'd change it. But on a whole, you know, if you look at most of the standards, ISO, PCI, whatever, it's kind of a let's review that policy set on a yearly basis or elements of it over the course of the year. But Roughly, you'll find that that most of those policies are reviewed pretty much annually. It's now shifting to this kind of idea behind continuous security and continuous testing. We're seeing quite a big shift in that defense in depth stack now towards, well, we need to be able to tell at any one time how secure or how insecure we actually are, at least, or make us at least aware of what the issues are so we can either band-aid them or get some kind of fix to them because you're not going to be able to to operate in that traditional model for much longer. I mean, look at insurance. We, we kind of mentioned it at the beginning, cyber insurance. We've just had that, not just, I mean, it happened sort of last year, I think it was, Merck with that $1.4 billion payout from their insurance companies, you know, to take them to court for that. And funnily enough, you mentioned... Uh, you know, earlier on, sort of like the definition of war and acts of war, they were quite often cyber insurance you know, or insurance companies would give you a cyber insurance policy that stated in the event of you know activity that attributed to that could be attributed to some kind of act of war, you're not going to get a payout, and that's what they claimed for that particular case. Well, we all know how that one panned out because uh, I, I'm guessing there's a couple of insurance companies that don't exist anymore after having to pay out. billion. But I'm getting a lot of reports now from the states that in order to do business with a lot of these big organizations, with the government and so on and so forth, um, because it's a bit of a different market out there, they're requiring you to actually have cyber insurance now. But then cyber insurance premiums are rapidly rising because of things like Merck and because, I mean, there was that that ransomware group. We talked last time, last episode about ransomware, so I don't really want to go back too far into it. But I posted it up on LinkedIn about that that group where they actively say just quite, you know on the QT tell us how much your cyber insurance policy will pay out and we'll we'll set your ransom to that you know even though you're not meant to tell us you know I don't know how <laughs> if if your payout is like ten million quid tell us tell us it's ten million pounds and then we'll we'll say okay the ransom is ten million pounds or nine hundred ninety nine you know nine 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 pounds just just underneath um, and we'll set it at that and then you can go on your merry way you know it's like it's not you they actually cite in the the write-up oh it's not not the only people getting harmed in this is insurance companies anyway and they deserve it kind of thing i mean i don't follow that particular thing myself but this is where we're going continuous pen testing is a thing that's becoming a, a, a significant concern as well. Yeah, so the, uh, I mean, the, the, the history of obviously pen testing is everyone thought, well, it's a good idea. You know, this, this pe- penetration testing occurred like 15 years ago, came into foresight. A lot of people and a lot of industries didn't necessarily pick up on it straight away. And I remember the introduction of uh, penetration testing probably around, yeah, about 11, 11, 12 years ago. Obviously, Razorthorn, we've been doing pen testing for all 
just as long as that, if not longer. Um, and we've been offering those services. But to begin with, it was, it, it gave a massive insight, you know, even an annual pen test where, you know, that's where the recommendation was to perform an annual pen test. You get a snapshot in time. You'll get the vulnerabilities. You can fix those vulnerabilities and you will be able to sleep better at night in essence. The more mature model started very quickly coming out of that within like a couple of years afterwards that they said, okay, but as well as doing pen testing, you should probably look at your secure development as well. Get some vulnerability scanning tools or some code checking tools or code scanning tools and things like that to ensure that the code that you are then releasing into the end products and everything else like that, you're not introducing developmental errors and things like that. So you don't necessarily have to fix those when the pen test, because the pen test won't find them. So a much more mature model was test your code as you're releasing it and everything else like that, but still perform an annual pen test. So, I mean, that was kind of like where we've got to. And now it's morphed again. And it's definitely a much more mature model to then start looking at continuous pen testing, continuous scanning, you know, validate the results that are coming out of it on a continuous basis. You can react a lot quicker. I mean, there was that whole adage of, I can't remember, there was some stats many years ago where people were saying the time it took to detect that a hack had happened was in the months and years rather than in the days and weeks. And they were constantly trying to bring that down. And I think continuous pen testing is a big fight against that. You can get, with continuous pen testing, you can, first of all, identify issues and vulnerabilities before someone is able to exploit it. And then potentially even at the same time with other tools that could be positioned alongside continuous pen testing, get that reaction time much, much quicker. And that's the idea behind this, is trying to get the reaction time, I believe, down to a minimum and fix things and go to a more holistic uh, security model rather than a reactionary security model. Well, it it works hand in hand. So where a lot of your solutions that uh, an organisation may may look to uh, enact within their their whole architecture, like Seam Solution is is a a blinding example because Seam obviously monitors your, your current network traffic. So it's specifically there um, to take in a lot of different data sources, analyze them, process them, and then generate an output to say, right, is what is going on on your network normal, um, consistent with the normal business um, baseline? And that's absolutely great. And you can identify whether there's something abnormal going on as it happens. Again, it's an absolutely great tool. Now, where it comes to the situational awareness piece is where continuous pen testing comes in. And that feeds into cyber threat intelligence. Obviously, cyber threat intelligence, it's one of the new regulations or control measures that um, is being introduced to 27001 colon 2022, so the newest update. And I'm sure with the, the, the American counterpart, NIST, because they're doing a significant review of their framework at the moment as well, and they're uh, uh, looking to publish that relatively soon, I'm sure threat intelligence is probably going to be involved in that as well quite heavily. So where obviously continuous uh, pen testing comes in is it highlights where those potential vulnerabilities lie within your network architecture, whether it be your internal, external infrastructure, whether it be your web apps, mobile apps. So that, yes, when that vulnerability becomes apparent, something can be done about it rather than waiting the two, three 
10, 11 months until the next annual penetration test comes in, because then it's too late. You know I mean, you've potentially had a, a wide open exposed network with vulnerabilities that has already been exploited by a, a, a hacker. Whatever hat they might be wearing at the time, obviously, if they're doing it without your knowledge, it's going to be nefarious. And part of the, the, the hacking methodology is always to put a backdoor in. So they may not have actually delivered a payload. They may not have actually done anything disruptive on your net. But what they've done is they've seated and placed a means to get into, back into your network with ease and efficiently. And that's generally what's sold on the dark and deep web to threat actors that may have a, a desire to, to breach and conduct an attack on your specific organization. I mean, there's a, a, a vast amount of organizations that are already compromised. They, don't, they may not know it. They may assess it and they may be monitoring that on whatever risk register and either accepting it, controlling it in, in whatever way. But there will be a lot of organizations out there that are already compromised. They just don't know it until they're subject to, a, to an attack. Um, and yeah, this is where continuous pen testing comes in. Well, this is it because I mean we've seen a shift in ISO twenty, you know, the, the newest version of ISO twenty seven thousand and one, where there's a requirement now for intelligence. And I, I was talking with uh, some guys about that on one of the other podcast recordings, and we were saying this is where the market is going. You know, on demand intelligence, on demand knowledge of where where you are at any one time. Cyber liability insurance, we've mentioned it a couple of times. I think a lot of that and the, and the reduction of the premiums and keeping your premiums as low as possible is going to hinge on proof that you are actively doing some kind of active monitoring and active intelligence gathering as well. Because there's a number of really good organizations out there who, who do intelligence and having them keeping an eye out on the dark web, on some of the more difficult boards to find, Unless you're a denizen of the uh, of the deep dark, you know we're looking at the simple fact that that if if you want to keep the costs low for things like cyber insurance, you're going to have to do this. We're going to see more and more frameworks adopting that consistent, ongoing security and assurance. And I think that's what it's going to probably wind up being called, you know, ongoing security assurance. Obviously, ISO has gone down that route by by requiring intelligence, which you can do yourself or you can buy a tool that will help you do that. Uh, but I think continuous testing is going to come in. I mean, we've already seen two-factor authentication, as we used to call it years ago, become multi-factor authentication. And we're seeing a lot of these frameworks requiring at minimum multi-factor authentication. I mean, I've been an advocate of multi-factor for quite a while now because... As far as I'm concerned, passwords of, of any the same size that most people tend to use, which is the barest minimum, tends to get cracked relatively quickly and easily now, or sort of circumvented completely. I don't know. I think we're going through this massive transitionary stage, and I think we I think there's a lot of organisations that don't know what to do because they got to update. They have to they have to move with the times. They have to move with where security is going. Otherwise, they're going to wind up like the Royal Mail and various other companies that have been in the news and reported to have been taken advantage of. I know, uh, Jim, you've put together kind of your iceberg model of threat intelligence. Oh, sorry, not threat intelligence, defence in depth, I should say. So bringing it back to the original conversation of defence in depth is that you've obviously got multiple layers. I mean, we may not be able to show it here, but you've got multiple layers within your kind of defence in depth model, iceberg model. 
And the last layer is obviously the intelligence layer. And this is the literally the last line of defense. Um, and intelligence is is where it, you turn it into a cyclical nature is that you are kind of trying to find consistent inten- intelligence, whether that be through testing, continuous testing, pen testing, dark web monitoring, et cetera, et cetera, that can feed all of the corrections and remediation to the back top of this uh, kind of defense in depth and let it filter through. So you're, you're kind of, you know, you, the intelligence is definitely, first of all, your last line of defense by shoring up vulnerabilities higher up in the, you know, higher right, up. So in I, the I would count to that, Jamie. Uh, I mean, co- cognizant of my, my background where intelligence is utilized pretty much at the very beginning of any decision-making process. I mean, certainly within a combat estimate, I mean, question one is, is pr- all about Forewarning. finding out about who's, who is your adversary, what are my current capabilities, who am I, what are my adversary's capabilities, what's the demographics, what's the topology of the, the, the local environment. So intelligence provides the basis of every decision-making process that you make thereafter. So I'd argue that intelligence needs to be that first run yeah, no, I'm, what I'm saying is, uh, what I was trying to get at is it, it's the part of it that you should start with and end with. So you're doing a continuous cycle, uh, cycle basically, is what I was trying to get to eventually. But yes, now I agree. You should always, not only is it your last ditch, there's something to rely on to make sure that you have you should have done it first in the first place. Yeah, but yes, no, I completely agree. Well, I disagree with all of no. you. <laughs> well, that's Just to be controversial. Yeah, absolutely. I think intelligence in in the security space is going to permeate at every level of that defense in depth model. And I think what will happen is we have to really update it because I don't think the layering model necessarily is fully correct anymore. We have elements of of intelligence and of security and assurance and continuous testing and items that need to be done on a regular basis that kind of permeate through each one of those levels. So I think what you'll find is our traditional defence in depth that we represent on an iceberg starts off with the very visible stuff like policies, procedures and all the rest of it. That's that's the top of the iceberg that you could normally see. Then you have kind of like at the water level, that's where your perimeter stuff sits for your usually for your network and then all the other functions are underneath because as we know an iceberg is a massive massive chunk of ice that you only ever see the right at the tip of but i think we're going to have to shift that model to the side a bit and then there's going to be a bar all the way down through all of those layers that accompanies assurance you know security assurance and that will make up that'll be made up of intelligence that'll be made up testing measures and I think not only are we going to be doing or or it's going to be recommended to do continuous testing of things like perimeter infrastructure, web applications and, and publicly available assets. Sorry if you can hear that in the background. Someone's obviously in trouble. It's also going to include things like testing of your the effectiveness of your solutions, testing of the effectiveness of your checks and balances and tests that you do. It's already part of a lot of requirements within, for instance, ISO and PCI DSS. Within PCI DSS, it's a slightly different thing because there's different dispensations depending upon if you're a service provider or whether you're not. But one of the things that we're seeing, or I'm seeing a lot of noise about, is third-party testing. 
and making sure that your supply chain and the supply chain of your supply chain and so on and so forth is secure all the way through by design throughout the links. Now, the only way you're going to be able to do that, because let's face it, there's going to be tons of resource required in order to meet those objectives, not only technologically speaking, but we're talking legally speaking, you've got to have the right contracts, you've got to make sure that your service providers are providing you with assurance that they're doing what they need to be doing at the similar kind of level that you are. And I think security has become a massively complex model now. And we, this is why we need to sit down and rethink. Um, and maybe that's an exercise for us to sit down and honestly look and say, right, the world has shifted, the world has changed. Our defense in depth models were based around securing one or a small amount of environments. What are we doing for the security of people's people working from home? They're using wireless. They're using insecure wireless because, I mean, I don't believe the, the Kool-Aid that, uh, our beloved in the UK, BT, tell you with its most secure wireless router on the planet. No, it's not. I've got people who can crack that in less times it takes me to drink this drink. And I think that's, that's where we're going. I think, I think very much broken out of, uh, you know, in the business world of being a, a branch of IT, which I think is a long time coming and now being seen as very much a department in itself. And I'm seeing a lot of, you know, in a lot of our customers, the larger customers where they have legal departments, where they have finance departments, a lot of them are, uh, you know, getting support from, funnily enough, legal and finance saying, well, you know, because they're used to legislation, let's face it, they, they have to deal with it on a daily basis, but they're providing a lot of support now for CISOs and security groups to be shifted from IT completely now. No dotted lines, no nothing. Their own department in itself. And you're going to see a lot more compliance as well going in that direction into that group. It's going to, it's going to almost be InfoSec departments are going to be the kind of the police of the company. So I hate to use that term because there's a lot of negative connotations to that in, in the view of some people's eyes. But you know, you've got to have an enforcement group who can sit there and actually look at what's going on around the company and, you know, deal with it. Yeah. I mean, going back, going on to like the, uh, just briefly touching on the vendor stuff, I, I, I could talk forever for vendor stuff. And you talk, Jim, about kind of like going down the PCI, uh, the PCI DSS requirement, making sure that your vendor is secure as, as well as your vendors, vendors are secure. I mean, you can only, it, it's becoming to a point where there's an untenable situation and eventually someone will come up with some solution to this. But the amount of resources, both people and technology and everything else like that, going into ensuring that your vendors are secure, they're providing a secure service, they're certified or whatever the case may be in providing, you know, they're certified in security to provide those services and products and solutions securely is becoming fairly untenable fairly quickly, especially when you're starting to have to go to not only third parties, but fourth parties and fifth parties. I've got a lot to potentially say about that because it's one of my area of expertise. But yes, it's it's definitely it's definitely something that needs to be looked at and maybe it'll be another a topic for another day. But yeah. Tom, just out of interest, what how do the military ensure security through their supply chain? Because it's very different with with supplies to the military, isn't it? Because, I mean, you've got, obviously you've got manufacturers who manufacture the various different kit that you use, but you do get a lot of 
other institutions providing various different types of support, be it IT support, be it supplying of kit from, you know, technical items, you know, whatever it is. How do they, because they've got the DART system, haven't they? Yeah, so, um, I mean, naturally, the the military, they, they like to do things quite diligently. Um, so any third-party contractors that they utilise either for a service or for a, um, an asset or item procurement chain, um, whether it be for a larger project for a, a main piece of equipment um, or whether it be for, for basic infrastructure like laptops and stuff like that. I mean, over the last couple of years, they went through a massive IT upgrade where every employee now that requires one is given a laptop. And that obviously, that was in the pipeline, believe it or not, before COVID lockdown. So when lockdown hit, we were already in the, the process of starting to to roll that out. So the military actually transitions to, to working from home relatively well. So biz, uh, normal business processes could actually continue. But going back to sort of supplier assurance, it's they have a, an organisation called CIDA that basically oversees all risk balance cases conducted for essentially a, a third party assurance chain. So a, any organisation or any contractor that wants to um, provide a service, comply or act on a, a, a military contract, they need to go through CIDA, um, conduct or submit a risk balance case um, to get their information control technology registered on the DART system. And until it's registered on the DART, they won't be able to facilitate the, the terms of their, their contract or even be in a position to bid for that contract. One of the minimum requirements that I believe they have is they have to be cyber essentials. Uh, obviously, NCSC being the main forerunner and controller of that can obviously provide guidance, go onto the website to, to see what the uh, the requirements are for that. But utilising obviously consultancies, if, if you haven't got any dedicated information security personnel within your organisation can aid with that, they can help. Now, it's not an overnight process. There is obviously things that need to happen to make sure that internal processes are in place, infrastructure is in place, so that you can have every success or chance of success in gaining that certification. But yeah, it's they do make sure that anybody that has a level of impact, whether it be third-party uh, contracted services or suppliers, are are vetted appropriately and they they protect defence identifiable information in the best possible way, reducing those risks to residual risk only. And that is one of their main stipulations. I mean, certainly moving on to this year, from July of this year, they are enacting a secure by design methodology where any contractors or any organisations that want to bid for contracts moving forwards have to be secure by design, not secure by afterthought and bolt on. So it's it's actually quite progressive, the, the line that they're taking. So it'll be very interesting to see how much of an impact that has on the commercial world, especially those that are linked or providing services to the military and government. And I think that specifically brings us back like almost full circle that we have, you know, putting in secure by design, getting the intelligence first or making that the center of this new defense in depth model is key. I think people should start and or, and or build around intelligence with a new defense in depth model that we've kind of discussed and we worked ourselves around. And building that intelligence in is basically bringing that in first and performing it by design. So I'm going to ask a question potentially to end on, but 
is that our guidance? Is that our advice to uh, companies out there maybe considering where to start with this or, you know, um, reevaluating their def- own defence in depth or how they, how they see it? What are we actually advising them to do? To start with intelligence, go uh, start the whole process from, you know, from by design rather than bolting in afterwards or getting the intelligence and building around it? You have to have a solid understanding of the intelligence cycle, though, to start with that. So the intelligence cycle is direction, collation, analysis, dissemination. Obviously, the starting, yes, we want to build a new ICT infrastructure or segmented network to be able to perform X, Y, and Z. The collation stage, for example, would be a workshop. Get all the required stakeholders or dual representatives from those departments into a five, 10-day workshop and say, right, what is it? that we need to do? What do we need to achieve? And what are the requirements? That is your information collect phase. You then process it. So once you've got all that information, you do your link analysis, your requirements for what that segmented network needs to be is your intelligence. You then pipe that out to the required entities that are then going to design this and implement this design to then put forward. And then the intelligence cycle starts again all the way through the dev process, all the way through the enactment, and then the then execution of, of that process or design. The intelligence cycle is constant, um, but you have to start from basic information collect, process that, and then you get intelligence. And I think in some spheres, there's a confusion about what information actually is and intelligence is because they're confusing the two. I think it's just gotten to the point now where you can't afford to have somebody who's not an information security professional really even begin to secure your environment. I think it's gotten too complex now. Um, don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of very, very good IT people out there, but it's it's not as simple as just chucking in some endpoint and some AV. And you're right, I think the intelligence factor of, you know, the first factor really is getting getting somebody involved who knows what they're doing. I think that's the best, best possible thing you can do. And that's not a shameless plug for our services, although we can provide those if you wish. It's it's very much a case of security's got so complicated with the implications so wide and so so potentially damaging now. I, I don't think you're able to, to, to do anything but get that professional in if you're starting from scratch. And if you're not starting from scratch and you're an InfoSec sort of professional who's been working to the same strategy for a while now, I think it's time to really sit down and actually re-review what you're what you're doing, where the trends are in the market, because I, I think the trends are changing dramatically, and I think uh, we'll leave it there. But I think next time I want to talk about the changes in attacks and how they're changing. Again, I talk to a lot of people through the podcast. We've got a lot of different guests. And some of the intelligence guys have started to, to worry about deep fakes now and the, and the possibility of, of ransoming of individuals, not the, the ransoming that we're talking about with ransomware, but actually ransomwareing them with deep fake videos of their wives or their, or their husbands or their kids or whatever. So it's, it's quite mind blowing, but we'll, we'll talk about that next time. So thanks guys for, uh, for another good session. We'll be speaking again soon and we'll be having a chat with uh, Tom and Jamie and maybe some other guys as well. Speak to you all soon and look after yourselves. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch.
Thank you very much and have a great day.